0: Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 93rd episode of the Truth Island podcast. Humor can sometimes be one of the most healing and destructive forces at our disposal. On one hand, humor has the potential to shine light and laughter into some of the darkest corners that we might find ourselves in life. It has the power to bring joy into a stressful work situation, tragedies such as death, and generally situations which we have little or no control over as a helpless person always retains the ability to at the very least crack a joke. However, humor also can have a very dark side as well. Humor has the power to destroy, to humiliate, to bring shame onto other people. Humor can also be a self-defense mechanism that one employs to deflect from touching upon sensitive ground that might lie at the core of an issue. For example, when speaking about a delicate issue with someone, it might be hard to tell if the comedian is genuinely trying to make a bad situation funny, or if the seriousness of the topic is just so painful that humor is the only recourse. Another issue that arises is when do jokes go too far? Some of the jokes, for example, that we may have grown up watching and listening to in the eighties and nineties may no longer be palatable by our modern day sensibilities. Is humor a static concept, or does it fluctuate from time to time, or maybe even from place to place? Also, should all jokes be designed in such a way that everyone can laugh, or is it okay to have jokes that are reserved for a private audience? Joining me to figure out when what we are talking about is a laughing matter, I am once again joined by Claire. Claire, I'm hoping that we can have a few laughs along the way, huh?
1: I hope so too, Aaron. I think that it's always fun to dive into the depths with you and talk about things, but um, I'm excited to have kind of a, a lighthearted conversation here. And it's a, it's a building block of of our everyday interactions, and yet it's not something we often explicitly call out
0: yes yes and sometimes like we sometimes we miss humor like sometimes it's when 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 humor is absent we really really feel it and and then like it 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 magically has a way of popping into our life and just bringing the unfathomable just making making the unbearable bearable and i i've always seen it in that light for the most part
1: yeah it's it's interesting you say that because That's something that's a little bit out of our control too, right? That, you know, depending on what's going on with our situation or our mental health or anything, our capacity for humor is different. Or I know like if I'm late for something... I'm not gonna think anyone's jokes are very funny you know but there are also moments of my life where i feel strong and free and i'm you know much funnier so it's 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 a weird one
0: yeah being being a comedian i think being comedian is a really rough job because mm. to always to always be funny man, that's, that's a rough one, right? Because you're always like, I, you know, like I I've made some jokes here, but I would never consider myself a comedian because it's so much pressure. Everyone's just looking at you, like, make me laugh, make me laugh, entertain me. I'll give you my, my one joke. I've actually said this joke before on the (laughs) podcast. All right. What do you call an unfunny comedian? What? A philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: oh my gosh that's really sad and true. Yeah yeah, uh-huh. that's definitely true.
0: Yeah because and, and and I think I think that comedians have a responsibility because they they get us to think about things and and you know if you read the studies about this, more people are getting their their basic news from people like John Oliver and and, mm-hmm. and, and Stephen Colbert and, and before that that was uh probably even like John Stewart who did that. And it's like people not only depend on these people for like news and usually news that's really dark and grim, but they actually expect that this news can be packaged in a a delicious manner for them to consume. And there's trade offs with that, right?
1: Absolutely. And yeah, in a certain way, it makes it more digestible. It helps us sort of process its implications right when we're hearing it. Mm. Um, but it's also, it is interesting with those comedy, you know, the kind of comedy news world that you, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, you think the joke is on your side. I'd have to find that research about it, but it's something like, you know, you always tend to think whether it's being over-exaggerating, it validates whatever sort of existing identity you have going on in your mind. So it's interesting. I mean, I think I think it's also maybe a product too of just a more informed populace, and so therefore, you know, the type of entertainment that people want to watch just is kind of pulled up in in politics. I would hope that that might be true, um, but yeah, it's a it's an interesting one.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that it has like some some the benefits are obviously a more informed population. Like I mm-hmm. I, I have to tip my hat. John Oliver is a very funny guy, and he probably gets mundane things that most people would gloss over to actually pay attention to. And I, I give right. him a lot of credit for that. One thing the, the dangerous part about it is that if it's just, if the news thing that he's reporting on is just a bit, right? It's just right. a bit. It's just like, this is the, here's the joke. Here's the punchline. Well, if there's kids starving in Haiti, and that's just a part of your punchline, why am I going to take it all that seriously? And I I can kind of see like a very negative part of humor where it also has a destructive power or potential to be used as a means of of desensitizing people and being like, hey, like, don't worry too much about that, you know, like, haha.
1: Right. I, I think that's a great point. And especially as we think about kind of just the, you know, the coddling of the American mind and the sort of softening of people's ability to handle complex emotions. You know, there's a lot of just awful things out there that are just awful, and so I I do um, I I hear you on that. I think Peterson gets a lot of flack for just being so shrill, right? It's like, can this guy <laughs> just lighten up a little bit? But I think what you see with him and some other thinkers, and and this lends to your philosopher joke, is it's not funny. Like we are so close to the Holocaust. Like this is this this history is right behind us. And, um, you know, be, be cautious what you joke about or how you joke about it. And gosh, it's, it's tricky because it it helps us process. It helps us understand emotion. It helps us unite around how we're feeling or reacting to something, but it shouldn't, I guess. Lessen the the impact or the lessons that we can learn from it.
0: One thing, and I, I, I that really got me puzzled about Peterson is that there's a quote somewhere where he says like I'm averse to humor or I try and stay away from humor yeah. or some I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm like, dude, you're a psychologist. How do you not know the the healing power of laughter or something? You know, like I'm I'm really trying to figure that out. And the only the only thing that I can really make sense of it is. Going back to my intro, where I said, like, humor is a great thing in moments where we can't do anything, then that's okay, right? And and, and again, I think I talked either with you or someone else that, like, in the Holocaust, there was a lot of humor, right? Because there was nothing that you could possibly do in that situation. Where I think Peterson is coming from, I, I can't fully enter his mind, is that he knows there's a lot of stuff that we ought to be doing and we're not doing those things. And we're kind of using humor or dark humor as a, as, a, as a means of deflection.
1: Definitely. And I think if he were to sort of categorize humor with other things, it would be in more of a sort of primal bucket along with sex and food and sugar and some of those just more natural dopamine um, re- releasers. And as we know of Peterson, he wants us on a way higher plane where where the meaning that you find kind of trumps everything, um, and that's a you know that's a hard pill to swallow. It's not a necessarily a quite a fun way to live. But then the other piece of it with Peterson is when he tells a joke. <laughs> right like it's it's a, that scarcity element too that, that you know we're not just and i think we we feel that and i'm often common i'll do this is i just throw jokes in left and right make everyone comfortable and it, it 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 sort of weakens it and so i think there is an element of reserving it for the right time and when it's really um kind of important i was i was just doing some kind of basic reading on where did humor come from and sort of evolutionary basis for it and how people think about it, which I was, didn't know much about. Um, and I guess that Freud has a book called jokes and their relations to the unconscious. And mm. his theory here was that laughter sort of releases repressed feelings. Um, and that if you, if you think about this in kind of like an animal behavior standpoint, that like the smile kind of relates to, you might think of a primate kind of baring their teeth. Right or that like primal (laughs) grin and and in that way it's almost a show of a, a dominance over someone else and I can see some I can see laughter or humor almost being that that I'm I'm trying to show I'm above this or I'm strong or I'm whatever I'm happy in kind of this non true way versus the kind of meaning and the hard path. Um, to really get there.
0: Now that's interesting because I've actually read something I think that was a little bit to the opposite with chimps, and and that they and you're the animal expert, so I'm 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 bowing <laughs> oh I'm gonna gosh, bow no. I'm gonna bow down to you on this, but something about like when a male chimp is defeated by the alpha chimp, he will like pick each, the each you know the alpha's fur as a way of right. saying I apologize, and he'll also be smiling as well, and mm. and that's kind of a submissive because like I maybe I have, I, I know it's some primate, maybe it's not chimps. I, I you know, I, I'm, my mind is blanking on this. I but can
1: see a chimp smiling though. I think that that's gotta be it.
0: Yeah. Yes. I, I don't know. I mean, I do, I do chimps bite because if, if usually oh, yeah. an animal, yeah. Okay. Okay. It's usually an animal shows you its teeth because it wants to bite you. It's like back right. off. Right. And, and, but I think with, with certain primates, they show their teeth, not because they're like, Hey, look at my canines, but more of like, yeah, you're, you're the master. I get it. So sorry. I apologize. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know,
1: And that is what we're talking about is that's the kind of the impact of it when you're dealing with group dynamics or large group dynamics is kind of this, this neutralizing force. Another kind of evolutionary theory that they were throwing out is that it allows us to kind of keep our facility for categorization flexible. So it's kind of connected to openness in some regard that allows us like humor allows us to look at the world in, in kind of a topsy-turvy way or with some imagination, mm. which then allows our facility for kind of redesign or improvement or all of those things. And and I I definitely think that's what we see is, you know, you're in an intense conversation, someone throws a joke in and it's like, wow, okay. Like, l- get it gives you some perspective, right? Let's bring in some different elements here and really see what we're doing, which is, you know, life is fleeting. We're all just a few years away from our you know, mortality and, <laughs> and humor helps us kind of see that.
0: You know, I like what you said about uh, possibilities and potentials. And this is where I kind of see the, the comedian as sort of being a philosopher. And I think of like... 90s observational Jerry Seinfeld like humor. Like, imagine, folks, if when you're at the checkout counter, because okay, maybe those ideas are silly and ridiculous, but they're getting us to think about alternate worlds and alternate possibilities. And I can see the utility value in that. And again, maybe it's just a joke about going to the post office, but he's actually saying something about like how, what, what, what might be a better way for us to go to the post office, or he's suggesting a way of like, why are we all doing this stupid ritual that serves no purpose anymore? And I think, absolutely. I think that, I think that like observational comedy can actually call into question, uh, social norms and social rituals and customs that are no longer serving us anymore.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think Seinfeld is, is the, the, you know, the creator of that and and so much comedy today just reflects that. i I was able to see him at the beacon two years ago, and he had this great bit about, aren't you guys busy? Everyone is so busy. And it was just a <laughs> whole thing about how like busyness has become such a currency. And it it was that moment of like, gosh, yeah, this guy is so right. Like we are running a rat race. And so I think, that ability to say thing, or Mitch Hedberg was so genius at this too, of just like calling out household objects and, and just making them seem so funny and and futile and true. Um, I was, I found this study on big five personality traits as it relates to famous comedians. And it was saying that, um, you know, in this one research study, this isn't, you know, verified truth, but that comedians show a much higher level of openness and then lower levels of conscientiousness in extroversion and agreeableness. And the Mm -hmm. agreeableness made a lot of sense to me too, that these guys are really open in ideas, but you need to not be very agreeable so that you can get up on stage and kind of like put your stuff out there. Yeah, Um, It's quite a profession.
0: Yeah, it is. And these guys go in front of the the firing line for for a living and and, you know it it takes especially if you're bomb you know I I think I even talked about this once with Roger, like if you're bombing, like that takes, you know, ego of steel to kind of like survive something like that because you have a whole audience of people just just not with you on that same wavelength and you have to kind of hold it down still. But but yes, I, I I think that they have a way of pointing something out, and when you point something out to society or to people in a very serious way, they get defensive, right? Like that's our that's our first reaction of like, hey, don't tell me what to do, or hey, I kind of like this. But when you make right. it a joke, it kind of let they let their guard down, and then that actually allows that that opens them that primes them for change.
1: Yeah, and I think that what we see going on there is kind of an acknowledgement of the great game that is life. And if we think of just sort of like game theory and game dynamics, we're we're all interacting in all of these complex kind of situations and we call it reality and we think that it's so set in stone. <laughs> and when you can start to see, you know, look at things through a lens of humor, you realize how sort of gamified the world is. And that is a kind of a leveling force
0: absolutely i mean maybe that's even a helpful coping mechanism like oh my life's not so bad it's a funny sitcom or you know it's just like this is the you know like maybe that's something that people could use i kind of want to take a little look at the history of comedy a little and i i didn't do ultra research on this but I think the idea of a stand-up comedian has not always, has not been around for that long. Right. I mean, we had like maybe gestures, Mm -hmm. we have Shakespearean plays that are funny. Like some of them have been classified as being comedies and so Mm -hmm. forth. So you have, you have designated periods of, of of comedy, but I think that a lot of, I, I think in the past, comedy has kind of just been sprinkled into more serious dramas and, and, and sprinkled into tragedies and, and like, I I, I would say like the, the rise of the, of the comedy movie really takes full steam in the nineties with your like Adam Sandler kind of Borat movies. And so like, I think if there was ever a a peak of like, this is a genre, like the comedy, the romantic comedy is a thing. You got your late nineties and your two thousands. And I actually read something, Claire, that said, there are far less comedies being made today mm-hmm. than there were 20 years ago. They're just there's no there's no market for them anymore. Is you end up having jokes sprinkled into like The Avengers or into these right. action films. So what the the way since they're not making comedy as a genre as much anymore, mm-hmm. they just sprinkle jokes into more serious matters. I don't know how how much I feel because I think I think a lot of these comedy movies in the 90s and 2000s were very funny but then it got to a point where you could say all right they're really they're really squeezing the sponge beyond mm-hmm. beyond what it's capable anymore.
1: Yeah, it's interesting cuz cuz in contrast I would say I think stand up is on the map more than it ever has been. Yes. and like Netflix like picking up all these comedy specials that's fantastic. I will say you know, like the the sitcom, like Big Bang Theory, is the number one show of all time. Like that's that so long. is it. I
0: thought that was off. <laughs> I don't know. The reruns <laughs>
1: probably those people are going to be making millions forever. Yeah. But yeah. you know, you know, the greatest, the biggest watched TV shows are generally those like late night sitcoms. But you're right. The kind of the those those classic Groundhog Day movies. You know, and and maybe that's just change. It, but I think there there is something archaic about comedy and. I don't have any of the text in front of me, but the, I think theres there's forms of comedy, especially physical comedy, that you know you can just see cavemen laughing at. Um, and you know, someone falling down a flight of stairs will always be funny, you know. And there's just this kind unless of unless like, it wo- happens
0: in real life, like when they, that happens in the if side, they get like, seriously injured, laugh. yeah, do not laugh at the lady falling down like the the trains to the the steps to the R train. Okay, that's just cruel. right. <laughs> but
1: you know, in a slapstick way, if the feet go flying up in the air, like there there's always going to be some humor in that. I've also heard like in theater, there's this idea of um, like the rule of threes. So if you say a joke, you want to say it three times, because by that time, that third time it comes back, everyone's going to be like, like, we got it. So I do think there are these kind of almost musical, magical elements to comedy that get people going. And even like that, um, the I Love Lucy scene where she's eating all the chocolates on the conveyor belt, that's been recreated in every other sitcom in some other sort of capacity. It's just gold. Um, And so I I wonder, yeah, maybe we are just going to inject those in other ways, or maybe we're past it. Like there is some humor that will evolve now. um,
0: Yeah, and things come back. I think that like Mr. Bean is a reinvention of Charlie Chaplin, you know, like it's all like all of these things keep getting reinvented, reinvented, reinvented. But I'm seeing this thing where it's like I, I notice now every actor that's coming out has to now reinvent like this. Oh no, no, no. You know, there's a huge difference between the eighties um, Bill Murray and like lost in translation, Bill Murray, right? Like he has to, like all these actors have to start becoming more serious and sadder and, and like, yeah, I'm more in touch with like reality and, and so, and, and so forth. And I'm like, does it mean that this comedy that we're watching, all of it has expiration dates? Like, like, like this was appropriate for this time period. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now, now it's no longer acceptable and we have to move on to other things. Like it, it just gets, and that's the funny thing It's like, sometimes I go back and I watch an old Simpsons episode and it's still really funny. And then other yeah. times it's just not clicking anymore. So just because something's old, doesn't mean that it's no longer funny, but then things that tend to be a little bit more situational or tend to like touch upon certain cultural taboos of that time, those things get dated real quick.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I'm not sure what makes something stand the test of time better. I think that that's a really, really interesting question. You know, certainly just some jokes are just fantastic and they just will sort of last forever. But, but if you don't have that context to it, it's not effective. And I think that that, that's something that I, I've always wanted to, and I hope that I still do it. Like before I leave New York city, I want to do a five minute stand up open mic. Like I, I don't care if I bomb, I just want to try, <laughs> yes. but I think something that I struggle with in when I'm thinking about jokes that I would say is they're funny to me, but they're definitely not funny to most people. Like I want to do a bit about how we should just round up all the labradoodles in the world and kill them. And to me, that's hilarious for so many reasons, because I know my background and I know I'm not actually sadistic toward animals, but anyone in like in that audience would just look at me like I'm insane. And I think that that's, um, I heard one sort of comedian, he had this genius quote about, it was about like drugs and alcohol and how. He wanted to do a bit about how no, no one should actually take them because they make you feel great and humans don't deserve to feel great which oh, is God. like so philosophical <laughs> but he was like I can never do that joke because pe- humans think they do deserve to feel great yeah and so like so there is this element of I think being a stand-up comic that it has to relate to most people in the room and they need to kind of be on board and I think often with my comedy it's like just trying to shit on people with labradoodles and that's not well, That's this is not going to make people happy. Well,
0: now, now this, now this is something I've heard, uh, you know, listening to Joe Rogan and other, other podcasts actually is that there's this idea that what's funny in one town is not funny in another town. Right. And you know people have theories like you know some one person has theorized that like people who are lower class tend to have a much cruder or much open sense of humor right they can laugh at more things and then as you get more educated you get more stiffer and then you overthink things and you're like no 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 that, that that's that's actually a, a truly sad thing you don't know what you're talking about sir you know so like I, I think that a lot of our humor even depends on the particular area, the context that we're in. I, I'm sure, like if you watched uh, something that's like like considered a comedy in China, it may not be funny here, and vice versa. I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, and, and that's another, you know, now that I'm actually using my noggin and thinking about why there's less comedy movies, you can't really export them as nicely to other countries, right? Action mm. movies are pretty universal, but if there's a very subtle cultural joke in a comedy, that may not fly all across the world because they just don't have that, that same sense of sensibility and vice versa.
1: That's really interesting that it is, it is very hyper-localized. And even if I think about some of my favorite comics now, they're kind of like New Yorkers around my same age that are in, my, in a similar world. I have friends from around the world and we often can't go to comedy together even though they speak great English now, but that kind of, it just doesn't translate or that, you know, the punchlines are different. There's a lay, I mean, language is also a huge element here that, you know, word choice and the words that we use and the, the words we even have at our fingertips are so different from culture to culture. Um, maybe you're right that globalization has kind of reduced it or at least localized it.
0: Yes, I, I think. And also it's like when the comedian makes a joke, he assumes his audience has a certain canon of knowledge. So mm-hmm. if I make like a G.I. Joe joke or a Transformers joke or something, like I assume that my audience is a certain type of person and they've watched this TV show or read this book.
1: Yeah, and then it is the you know the humor that kind of withstands is... That which transcends, or again, to the sand, Seinfeld thing, like simple humor. But then I think also there's there's that humor you didn't expect, or when something comes out of nowhere, that kind mm. of shock and awe, or uh, that is very compelling and, and really moving. And I think, and, and there's the little piece of it too, that's like, can they say that, right? Or I never thought about it like that, or that kind of eye-opening element.
0: You know, I, I think I think we, we might be on to, to some gold here because I like what you just said about like some of the best jokes are just impromptu, right? They just came out of there. I mean, you really, when I've gone to the, um, the comedy cellar and all these places in the West village, some of the best stuff comes when the comedian is interacting with the crowd. Right. And like, none of that's planned. None of that is there. Like the guy just says, you know, I'm from Australia and and the, okay, maybe the guy has some Australia jokes offhand. I don't know, but sometimes it just really comes off natural. Like this, this, there's something magical about this moment right here, and then you laugh. And maybe you lose something with comedy that's scripted or contrived. Mm -hmm. Because if it's contrived, it's like you have all of the like, okay, I assume my audience knows this and that. And maybe, maybe it is squeezing a sponge too far. Because like, maybe humor, it's kind of like, I I, I think I heard uh, Peterson say that happiness is a byproduct of something else. Okay, Mm -hmm. if you ever feel happy in this world, it's because you were doing something else, you were trying to achieve something. And then all of a sudden, you just felt like, hey, I kind of feel happy right now. I don't know what it is. But Mm -hmm. when you try to just be like, I want to be happy, I want to be happy, and you clench your fist, you're never going to get happy. And maybe that's the same thing with comedy. Like, and that's kind of why like the Adam Sandler sort of movies have gone away because they were squeezing. They were like, be funny, be funny, be funny, be funny, make, make this less, you know, like when you, when your foot, when you drop that weight on your foot, make sure you've got like a huge, like your react facial reaction or something. And maybe, maybe that doesn't work anymore. Just contrived humor just doesn't work. It has to be natural.
1: And there is, and there is a sort of transitory or it's always moving it's always evolving kind of once you've hit the joke it it should it should be moving there this is almost like bringing me back to sort of concepts of meditation and sense of self of like we get so caught up in who we are and what we are and what a joke is and and sort of the rigidity of it that when something comes out of nowhere it reminds you of just sort of the 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 act active element of life and that things aren't as static. And I, I think sense of self, I've just been really stuck on sense of self. Cause I've been doing these Harris, Harris's daily meditations and he keeps making you open your eyes and look back <laughs> at yourself. He has a, a like, great voice, by the
0: way. Like I love a great voice, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. But he keeps making you like, l- try to look at an object and then look back at yourself to kind of show that you don't exist. Like, where is your consciousness? What are you actually looking back at? And I think, you know, so much of anxiety and depression and, and just stress comes from our identity and trying to match that identity up with who we are and what we're achieving and all of that. And when you can kind of flip that on its head and, and, and um, that this is what I think. Again, drag does a great job of, right? That like, let's just put on dresses and go out there and like, and and live life and really feel the world and and shock and awe and push it to the limit and sing and dance and celebrate and valuable.
0: I, I remember this the, the, one of the funniest things that I saw uh, when I was younger. I was going out drinking with my friend, and we were <laughs> leaving this 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 pub, right? And what we saw is we were leaving this one bar and this guy comes out and he's dressed as a king. Like, like he's just wearing a crown and he has like a red thing. And what's funny about it is that he wasn't, he was just like acting completely normal. And that's what actually made it funny is that he, he like was wearing a king's outfit, but he wasn't acting like a king. He wasn't saying outrageous things. He was just like going about his business. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's funny right now because it's so, you don't see it and he's it was almost like yes he's trying to get attention by wearing that but the way he's conducting himself is if like hey yeah i'm just i'm just here having a drink with you peasants over here at the bar
1: and i have a friend twix in new york and he always wears a crown but it's more serious he's just like if i can believe this then i will be treated this way and i w- and i think there's so much elements of of how we physically portray ourselves and what we wear that. We're all just, I mean, if you look around New York City, everyone is wearing black, gray, or blue. And it's just, <laughs> it's a little sad because there's so much creativity that we could be kind of, and, and happiness and joy that we could be injecting into our lives. Oh, yeah. um, if you don't, if I can, you can indulge me. I wanted to read, I found this awesome little story. So this makes me think of, there's this great story about the Dalai Lama being on a, like a speaking tour. And uh, he was in a hotel room and he was like going to talk at some Ivy League university. And one of the men that was helping to kind of facilitate this tour, um, decided to leave a Groucho Marx mask in the room for him. And they describe it in this article as like a gesture of friendliness, but I guess also his holiness had told this guy that um, he didn't have much freedom right? And all of, my, all of his role was just around politics and responsibility and being this compassionate fellow. Um, and so it was just kind of like this sign of of humor um, that he left this in the room for him just to kind of be funny. And then the article goes on and it says, so imagine this, a small cascade of university bureaucrats arrayed in the Dalai Lama suite waiting for their guests to appear. They sit erect in armchairs designed for slouching. They're keyed up to the barricade of media flocks surrounding the hotel, the barricade of FBI men surround the suite, the barricade of fear. They have spent an inordinate amount of time and donor money on this visit. And they like all humans harbor the deep longing to be knocked back up by an influx of spirit and greatness <laughs> spirit in its past and, and then the door flings open account of <laughs> unaccountably groucho marks wearing long maroon robes and serious lace tubes emerges chuckling loudly laughing mm. so hard that tears came to his bespeckled eyes
0: no I, I think i can speak to this a little bit because it, it kind of um hearkens to the theory in buddhism called nothingness and if 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 Dalai Lama is always Dalai Lama, right? And he's always in that mode of like I am ultra, I am a spiritual ultra whatever. Well, he's actually not practicing Buddhism correctly because it actually says that you need to just be more flexible. You need to be able to take on the persona that the occasion requires. And and maybe maybe he just smelled something in the air that said, "Man, oh man, I cannot be serious right now." And and I think that's that's one of the traps that we all kind of make is that we take ourselves too seriously we 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 have we we have solid ident- you know I'll give you another example is like someone who really fashions themselves smart right or they think that they're a butt and then they make a stupid mistake a stupid spelling mistake a stupid geography mistake right if you have an identity of i'm a genius and you make that mistake it's going to burn a hole through you like no tomorrow but if you kind of have a flexible like i'm a goofball kind of thing then it's not going to really burn because you're not really burning through an identity you're burning through nothing
1: it's spot on and that's this this sort of static sense of self that we all get you know i'm a i'm a good wife. I'm a good business person. I'm, I, whatever that I'm really fit. I'm great at CrossFit. Like these all become these so important parts of our identities. And then something, you get an injury or you lose a spouse and your life falls apart and this, you know, you're thrust into chaos. And so I think having an element of, Uh, you know, just openness towards our sense of self and and playing with putting on different hats and putting on a Groucho mask mask every now and then when we feel like it, you know, does create some anti-fragility when times get tough because our identity will change. Peterson says, you know, every beautiful princess becomes the evil witch eventually. Like, we we are all headed there. And so um, being ready to kind of and there's a self-deprecation to it too yes, I think is, yeah. is really important. People, I love people who are self-deprecating. You know, you have to be careful. You certainly want to be confident. But um, it's just really, oh, it just takes the weight off.
0: You know who I also think of that these people also do a really good job of this is like physics teachers and physics professors because they actually have like one of the hardest majors. It's like really tough to be a physics major. But I noticed like some of the best teachers – come in with the funny looking tie and they kind of, Play practical jokes and have good like, and they're known for this. They're they're known for being ultra quirky people. And it's like it's funny that some of the smartest people in the building are the biggest goofballs there. Whereas you can just picture like the sociology major who's like, oh my god, the world is so bad and all this other stuff. But like really like hardcore physics guy who's taken like a thousand calculus classes. He's there making jokes and has a funny cool Simpsons tie, and 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 is trying to get you know. And it's like that's an example. I think that's a walking example of that where. It's like by, by definition, they should be like the most smartest, most stoic people in the whole building. And yet they're the ones cracking the most jokes and probably are like, like have like can probably take any joke thrown in their direction.
1: Yeah. And I avoided physics like the plague most of my life. So I'm not one to talk on this, but I I think there might also be an element of just the, the field of study is, does acknowledge an ever changing sort of kinetic movement of life. And I think it's, you know, that's kind of what's really fascinating about the sciences is while they are grounded in truth, they're also grounded in experimentation and and change and evolution. And yeah, I think that there's there's definitely something to be said for the teachers in the world and just the mentors in the world that that lighten things up and 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 because it shows practice practical application, Yeah. how you
0: learn. You know what else I think? It actually, you spoke about confidence. Sometimes I think humor, especially in teaching, humor actually conveys confidence, right? Because if you think of a first year teacher, they're the ones that are like dressing up like my first year teaching i wore like a tie for a few weeks i was you know dressed you know good slacks a nice dress shirt and i was not i was like you know and then i was trying to appear very scholarly very knowledgeable and so forth whereas you got you know teacher that's been doing this for 15 years comes in in an undershirt and jeans and is cracking jokes and the kids just respect that they kind of respect that this guy has some humor to them because it kind of shows like hey I'm so darn good at what I'm doing. I don't even have to take it seriously.
1: Absolutely. And I think we see this, we see this in government. I I see this all the time in business that, you know, you want to have a beer with the people you elect. And I think very often in, in an interview format or in a serious conversation, if I can get a joke in, in the first three minutes, that conversation is going to be far more effective um, kind of down the road. And, who knows why there's lots of reasons. I think it, it, it kind of lightens it a little bit. It takes some of the, the heaviness off of it, but it does show to your point, a confidence that I'm confident enough in myself in this interaction that I know there's something bigger than it. And and it it shows a sense of compassion too, that, Hey, I want you to have a good time here.
0: That's it. Next job interview, I'm spilling coffee on myself or something. Making a a little joke. Like I'm so confident. Look at me guys, you know? (laughs) All right. Last, last thing that we need to touch upon is we have a lot of jokes that go off in the workplace or amongst friends how careful do you need to be about who's finding it funny or not finding it funny so like does the person cracking the joke have to be like 95% of my coworkers are going to find this funny 90% 80% 50% do they have to do some kind of mental gymnastics in their head is there is if one person doesn't find it funny the joke just can't be made you know like cuz maybe there's an extreme like if everybody doesn't find that funny and it's really distasteful well then you should probably not make that joke. I'm just I'm just like who are you really benefiting at that point? Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if there's some kind of mental algorithm or mental calculation one must make before they they just want they just let one loose in the workplace.
1: Yeah, it's it's very tricky, and and it's one that you know we we get wrong, and we learn from it, right? And I think often with humor, you don't plan to say the joke, and then it comes out, and you're like, oh shoot, I shouldn't <laughs> said that. But um, I I think what comes to mind for me is just intentionality, and really being conscious about the words we're using, and why why we're saying a joke in a moment, and what is the where are we headed with this, and wow. hopefully the goal is to get us, to get this group a little closer and a little farther along. And if that's the goal, then yeah, if, if 40% of the people are gonna think it's offensive or not funny, you're not headed there anyways. Um, there is an element though of living in truth. If you think it is ridiculously funny and you're willing to kind of stake any reputational losses on it, then, you know, and you have to say it, then say it. I mean, there is a sin of omission in keeping your mouth closed. Um, and then just hope that you do surround yourself in life with people that will you know understand that you're com- you're doing the best you can. and and language is, is 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 faulty. you know all we're doing in communication is kind of testing things out and trying and failing. and and so yes, you, we will offend people. That is the purpose of words. Um, but unfortunately today that's not always perceived. So I'm, I just try to really think before I talk at work and it doesn't always happen, but you know, at the end of the day, no work getting done or no paycheck is worth someone feeling bad, you know? And, and yes, that yes, you need to, we need to have the ability to say offensive words because Mm -hmm. that's just fundamental to growth. But if we can avoid it, I certainly will try
0: to, you know, I'm just as you're talking, I'm just thinking of the most toxic place on the face of the earth is a teacher's lounge. Okay. like the the (laughs) most nastiest, craziest stuff comes out in a teacher's lounge and I think like if a teacher's venting about some students that are giving them a hard time, that's totally cool. Right. And the student's not there. student, because like these kids give us like a lot of crap. It's like, you know, you need, you need to kind of like talk with another adult in a, in a funny way about what just happened. Right. Because you can't, you literally, some teachers cannot go on and teach. Like it's either, it's either I make fun of this kid or I have a nervous breakdown right now and cannot teach my seventh period. So like this humor is a way of, of keeping us sane. Right. And that's, that, and no matter how outrageous the joke is or whatever, it's like, we know it's coming from a good place. And we know that it's also coming from a place of like, if I don't get this off my chest, it's going to eat me alive. And I will not be able to continue doing this job. And that, you know, and and that kind of nasty sardonic humor is needed sometimes to get you through the day. Now I'm wondering where I've been in the teacher's lounge. It's never like, oh, that kid really had it coming and therefore they deserve that joke about them. Sometimes I see maybe on like things that are just like a little gross, maybe there's too much profanity profanity just being used, just unprofessionalism, mm-hmm. you know, or, or maybe jokes that are kind of like, you know, really offensive towards a group of people or a group mm-hmm. more offensive to women and so forth. Is it ever like, if you don't find something funny, Claire, do you think it's ever appropriate to ever speak up and, and talk to that person and say, hey, man, I, I think you kind of crossed the line on this one? Or do you think in life you just kind of have to, you don't have to laugh at it, but you kind of just have to take a big gulp and just bite your tongue and just let it be? Because I, I I struggle with this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, do you do you sit there and take it or do you, do mm-hmm. you, what, what do you do exactly?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think really looking at what what is this person communicating outside of just the words and i so often in what we say it's it's projection it's some other vulnerability or security or insecurity or just hunger or having a bad day or who knows what is going on in that person's world that that kid brought up something from their childhood i mean we we all are just so fragile and and so loaded with our own past experiences so i think really dissecting that because if you do find That that's coming from potentially a place of weakness that's a different way to you know you don't need to kind of stand up and be the strong man there. Um, But absolutely I think you know Peterson talks about saying no as early as possible, so that it doesn't get past that point where you should have said no, a really long time ago, and so I find in that situation, I find it's often effective to. You bring that talk to that person later, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about this before with feedback. You're not going to call them in it in the room. That is not no. It's just not going to go well overall. Um, but but pulling that person aside and saying, "Hey, when you said X, it made me feel Y," or I think the implications of it were Z, and and you know they'll they'll get it. They'll they'll know it really quickly, and then watch. Also watch your reaction. Why is that pissing me off so much? What is it about this? Is this really my battle to fight? But I, I'm one that I kind of think most things should be allowed to be laughed about. Cause if you can't speak about it and laugh about it, you know, what else can you do? It just stays bottled up in your brain.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I guess I have a, I'm not very PC. I have a very loose sense of humor. There is one thing though, that I have no forgiveness for. And I don't really like bullies. Th- mm. This is this is this is where I I, I kind of have a soft spot. And mm-hmm. some teachers actually in some classrooms, Claire, there's two teachers in a room or something like mm-hmm. that. And when I see jokes being made that are kind of undermining another professional, mm. that's that because okay, sometimes kids have it coming, man. Like if that kid if that kid <laughs> is acting a foul rip right into them. No, no, that's self that that's judo right there. That's self-defense. But sometimes I, I, I would hear like one teacher making fun of one of her colleagues and be like, he's so slow or he's so this or that. And I, he hasn't, you know, she hasn't gotten laid in like 10 years or something. And there's some very nasty stuff that's being said. That's kind of where I, I, I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I kind of, like underdogs and I, I have yeah. a thing for the meek or whatever. And then right. I, 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 that really gets under my nerves. And what ends up happening in these situations is that word always gets around. Word mm-hmm. always, always gets around. And that's why, and, and like not only does word get around, the people, it's not just the person who made that joke who eventually gets called out for it. It's also all the cabal or the small little mm-hmm. circle of other teachers that were laughing at that joke as well. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we have some kind of responsibility to stand up to that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Because I i do, there is a dark side of humor where it's like, I'm really using these jokes to like bring down your character and, mm-hmm. and debase, debase who you are as a human mm-hmm. being. And for me, that kind of crosses a line. Maybe when the stand-up comedian does it, the stand-up comedian is making fun of public figures that are millionaires, and they're already strong and powerful. Fair enough. But I don't like it when regular folk are being made fun of, and, they can't, and they're and they not even there to defend themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And mostly in those situations, I find it's, it's a great blessing that that person has shown you An element of their character and and now I know to stay clear from you and not tell you things that are important to me, because you know and that's the very least we can do is just protect ourselves and draw ourselves out from that. Um, But I think yeah absolutely that standing up to bullying, at least shows that person that that there is a line and that's not acceptable behavior because bullying is such a, a feedback loop, and I you know I find so often it's, you know, that person was bullied by their parents or as, as their child. And we see this in the bullies that I grew up to is, is it was often the person that was teased Mm. first, second, and third grade, then they became the bully in middle school. Right. So it's just this kind of reaction to um, how you're treated by others. So, so there should be an element of compassion to it, but often the greatest form of compassion is putting your foot down and saying, "Uh uh-uh, this is not acceptable because it, it treats someone honestly and not just
0: Ha ha! One one thing I did, you know, I, I maybe I should have been braver in some of these situations. But one time, I think what this was my way of standing up. someone made an inappropriate joke about another colleague. And some people laughed and I didn't laugh, but then I made direct eye contact with the person making the offensive joke, being like, I'm on to you, buddy. Like, I'm on, I'm on to you. And and like, just you can see that my that I'm not laughing at what you're saying because you're you're throwing a brother under the bus right now. And then that's that's not OK. I, I think we need to do an episode on bullying. I think that's that's the next thing yeah. that we need to touch upon. That,
1: definitely. And I think eye contact in that way is it's very effective, but it's also there's an evolutionary basis of it is you're not avoiding it. You're not like looking away and not laughing, but you are like br- drink, bringing attention to that, which was not good. Yes. Um, and I find that a lot. And, and it's something we can still do now with zoom meetings is, you know, if everyone's laughing at something I often will just, you know, really watch my expression or my reaction to something because you know that anytime anyone's talking they're looking at at the faces in the crowd and they know like we don't need language to to articulate uh, you know a piercing stare especially from a teacher
0: (laughs) i I think i think i think a good takeaway from all this is if you're gonna crack a joke you're not gonna win everybody okay but whether that person's there or not there if you're making jokes that would bring someone to tears. That's probably not a laughing matter. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: It was very fun. Thank you, Aaron.
0: This concludes the 93rd episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.